Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of Churchpreneur's Podcast. In this episode, I present my paper called Touch Not the Lord's Anointed, A Short Theology of Anointing at the European Pentecostal Theological Association's 2022 Summer Conference. Thanks for listening. Take care and God bless. Thank you very much. Uh, a uh, quick disclaimer, this was originally a uh, 20,000 word paper, so I have I have uh, ripped it down <laughs> to to uh, under nine. So um, let's see how we can get through this. I'm just gonna, unfortunately, uh, I'm a youth pastor uh, and missionary, so I like doing presentation and stuff, but I'm just gonna unfortunately just read. So hopefully uh, we can get through it. And if not, then I will cut one of the back sections of the paper and I will just maybe summarize it in the end, or maybe we can address it in the question times. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so let's get started. Touch not the Lord's anointed is a phrase that is often used in Christian circles to manipulate people to hold back critique and disallow dialogue, particularly when it comes to someone's teaching. Such intimidation can produce fear, trepidation, and the threat of the curse of God. The film American Gospel, Christ Alone, has a short section that identifies and describes how this threatening phrase is employed by teachers. Famous televangelist Benny Hinn has on many occasions applied this phrase in this way. In a recent event in Lagos, Nigeria, Nigeria, Hinn said, don't touch anyone who is anointed for an office, even if they are a devil, end quote. Archbishop Benson Idahaso of Nigeria has likewise repeated this idea in very menacing ways, saying God will set people on fire for touching the Lord's anointed. Many others have taught this ominous view that we ought not to touch the Lord's anointed through criticism. Joy Dawson, in her book, Intimate Friendship with God Through Understanding the Fear of the Lord, has an entire chapter titled, Touching the Lord's Anointed. She lays out the view that we are not to criticize our leaders and that there is a weight to the command. Dawson gives us a list of scriptural anecdotes in the Old Testament that she says will be judgments that people could face if they criticize anointed leaders. The judgments that she mentioned could include such things as leprosy, the earth swallowing people up, as in the rebellion of Korah, being barren, as in the wife of David Michael, and being mauled by bears. We know the story of Elisha. She concludes these stories by saying the principles learned from these lives apply to us today. Dawson continues to describe several stories of what she calls strong judgment, which produce grieving the Holy Spirit, barrenness of soul, and her own personal illness for touching the Lord's anointed. There's a plethora of other teachers teaching such similar views. Johnny Enlow, for instance, wrote the book, The Seven Mountain Mantle, Receiving the Joseph Anointing to Reform Nations. Many have taught that there is a Joseph anointing, and according to Enlow, it's a special anointing to reform nations. There are all manner of other named anointings in the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith movements. Prophetic anointing, apostolic anointing, breaker anointing, which is an anointing to break off things off of people. Bill Johnson, senior leader at Bethel Church in Redding, California, teaches a tribal anointing, which he says is an anointing on a company of people. Likewise, there are five-fold levels of anointing, an Ezekiel anointing, an anointing to defeat Goliaths, a warrior anointing. There is virtually a named anointing for almost everything. 
One could presumably choose a biblical character, story, or principle, and there is more than likely a named anointing for it. The list of named anointings is endless. Ansi Hutchinson wrote the book, Touch Not My Anointed and Do My Prophets No Harm. Rod, Rodney Howard Brown has likewise written two books that include such themes, The Anointing, and another similar title, How to Increase and Release the Anointing. Brown has taught such aberrant ideas as handkerchiefs having anointings, that anointings are transferable, that anointings produce healing, deliverance, provision, and that demands can be placed on anointings for increased anointing. These few examples of teachers who teach the special anointings and claim it of themselves gives a substantiated picture that it is in fact being taught and confirming this teaching's extreme nature. Leaders employ this phrase to silence critique by threatening adherents and others who might criticize them with God's judgment. Kessler explains the destructive nature of this theology and manipulation tactic and what a Christian leader's focus should be. He writes, quote, the abuse can be more extreme. American Christians do not need to be too old to recall a series of financial and sexual scandals involving certain televangelists. As disturbing as any part of that fiasco was, the defense by some of the accused that we should, quote, not touch not the Lord's anointed, the difference is one merely of degree for the pastor who demands that his congregation just take his word for it. The authority of the church is in the word of God, not in the human presenter of it, end quote. Similarly, the Gospel Coalition in Africa has tried to shed light on such abuses. Conrad Mbiwi wrote the, to expose the dangers of this tactic that in his experience in Africa has found a home in many traditions because of the animistic history of the continent. This tactic is so thoroughly intermingled into evangelicalism that Christians will often employ it in defense of teachers that are placed under biblical critique. I have regularly heard, touch not the Lord's anointed in defense of a teacher, prophet, or a so-called apostle whose teaching does not stand up under biblical scrutiny. It's usually in a context when a person is questioning the biblical validity of a teacher's teaching or something of that nature. The defender says something to the effect of, be careful, don't touch the Lord's anointed, or don't lift up your hand against the Lord's anointed. In these scenarios, people bend this biblical phrase way out of its contextual and context and gravely misapply it. D.A. Carson calls this an exegetical fallacy. We can apply Carson's unwarranted associative jump to such hermeneutical mishandlings. Of these associative jumps in exegetical errors, Carson says, quote, this error is shockingly easy to commit in textual preaching, overlooking the old adage that a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text, end quote. Individuals of teachers using the scripture in this way make an egregious exegetical error by pulling the phrase out of its context to make it a proof text for protecting leaders or when leaders seek to protect themselves. The broader concept of a peculiar and superior anointing has been used so often that it has become part of the evangelical landscape, according to MacDonald. There are several scriptural texts that this phrase or semblance of this phrase appears. One text is most often quoted is found in 1 Samuel 26. David and Abishai were in King Saul's encampment, and Abishai wanted to kill Saul with his spear. But David said, quote, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Instead of killing Saul, David took his spear and water jar as evidence that he had the opportunity to kill him. David thought that harming the Lord's anointed chosen leader would be an egregious sin. 
What most people are doing when they question the biblical nature of some teacher's teaching is a far cry from what is happening here when we use the term the Lord's anointed. David's general Abishai wants to pin Saul's head to the ground with one stroke of the spear. Christians who question the theological or biblical basis of a teacher or teaching are not trying to pin that teacher's head to the ground with a spear. The application of these texts in this vein is an exegetical and hermeneutical error, which has been employed as a tactic of teachers to keep their adherents from questioning them. People who practice this subterfuge egregiously abuse and manipulate this biblical concept. Touch not the Lord's anointed in the Old Testament. Touch not the Lord's anointed was a common idea in the Old Testament. Several biblical passages will further elucidate its meaning and application. And in 1 Chronicles 16, we see David uses this idea amid a celebration. Interestingly, David is the only biblical character who quotes this idea, and he does so more than once. In 1 Chronicles 16, the Israelites were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And David uses this phrase in this lengthy psalm. This psalm in 1 Chronicles 16 is almost word for word found elsewhere in Psalm 105. They're so similar that it was probably some kind of well-known psalm, um, a psalm of thanksgiving. David is most likely the writer of this psalm. David refers here to Israel's humble beginnings and wanderings. God allowed no one to oppress Israel in those years, and God himself rebuked kings on Israel's account who would try to harm God's anointed. David here praises the Lord for the protection of Israel's early kings and prophets. David remembers Israel's history and the principle of the protection of God's anointed prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with a special oil mixture, a symbol of initiation, setting something apart, consecration, or sanctifying something for a special work. Through such consecratory occasions, God's prophets, priests, and kings would be initiated into their role as through the anointing. Aaron and his sons were anointed into the Levitical line through anointing as priests. It was to be a perpetual ceremony for Aaron and his sons as long as the priesthood existed, which is finally and sufficiently fulfilled in the high priestly service of Jesus Christ. This ceremonial anointing is described in detail in Exodus 30. God told Moses that this will be a sacred ceremony for generations to come. The precious oil described in Exodus 30 is very, very interesting. The use of this specific oil mixture was forbidden for common use by anyone else in the greater Israelite community. It was solely reserved for the purpose of anointing the leaders of Israel. This anointing oil was presumably very rare and expensive to create. Moses made a, a shekel amount that converts to 14,700 grams, a rather large amount. Not only was this a rather large amount, but it would have cost at current market value $60,000 to produce. The ingredients, calamus oil from Nepal and cassius oil from India would have been very difficult for Israel to acquire. God gave this ceremony to Moses as a foreshadowing of things to come when our anointed head, Christ, the Messiah, would come to demonstrate his priestly anointing. The anointed Jesus as high priest is described of in Hebrews 9. It says that he entered the perfect tent in heaven and mediated for us the new covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ has an, was anointed to enter into the heavenly tabernacle as high priest to mediate for us there. 
Moses mixed a sufficient amount of oil needed for the occasion of consecrating the priests, their garments, and all the temple articles. Everything that the oil touched became sacrosanct. Fundamentally, this act of anointing was an act of God. Yahweh chose those to be anointed, as seen in the anointing of David as king. Anointing was, and still is, conferred according to the will of God, apart from man's will, choice, or effort. Samuel would have chosen any of the other sons of Jesse by their stature and their outward appearance, but God chose and called David to be king. The purpose of anointing found in Exodus was to inaugurate the priests into their holy function and office of mediation of the people. The priests were the holy go-betweens. God required them to have been made holy for that office and function through anointing with this holy mixture of oil. The Hebrew word for anointing here in Exodus 30, 31, mishkach, and its root word also used in this passage, mashach, meaning to anoint, smear, rub, or smear an object with liquid or semi-liquid. It was a religious activity to dedicate or consecrate a person for service. David likewise used a similar word in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 22, Mashiach, which means anointed one, one who has been anointed. Uh, was a, uh, Mashiach was a person who had been anointed with sacred oil ceremonially on the head, usually. In the anointing, they became a person with special authority and function. Um, Mashiach, by being ceremonially smeared with that consecrating oil, was set apart for an office or duty chosen by the Lord. Um, it appears 39 times in the Old Testament and primarily refers to prophets, priests, and kings. Touch in these contexts, touch not the Lord's anointed, obviously means not to lay hands on or cause physical harm to an individual through violence. This is illustrated through David's refusal to kill King Saul. However, David did not hesitate to speak the truth about Saul and to call him to account. Furthermore, David, as subsequent anointed king of Israel, received a harsh rebuke, if you remember, from the prophet Nathan after his adultery with Bathsheba. David did not invoke the touch not the Lord's anointed to himself in this case. Touch not my anointed does not mean we cannot rebuke leaders or hold them accountable for sin. Despite these commands, God's prophets and other anointed leaders occasionally met violent and gruesome ends. If God issues such a severe warning, why is it that, for instance, Isaiah was sawn in half? Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and Origen all upheld the tradition that Isaiah was sawn in half. Not only does Origen confirm that Isaiah was sawn in half, but he also confirms that the prophet Zechariah was killed between the sanctuary and the altar. Church history and the scriptures seem to indicate that many anointed of God throughout history have been physically persecuted and martyred, including Christ himself. Hebrews 11 verse 36 likewise indicates that someone in the annals of faith history was sawn in two. How can this promise hold weight when God's anointed ones throughout history have been persecuted? The simplest answer is that mankind will do as he wills. Despite God's principles, man will disobey. This doesn't alter the severity of the warning or its consequences. It was true that God's anointed were tortured and sometimes put to death by their enemies and even their own people. God will deal, albeit ever so severely, with those who harm his Mashiach, chosen leaders. The New Testament Theology of Anointing 
The New Testament does not present the idea of men of God meeting be mediating between us and God anymore. The New Testament has no commissioning instructions for the office of prophet, priest, or king. Those offices are fulfilled once and for all in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the Mashiach. They are perpetually occupied exclusively by Jesus Christ, as we'll now examine. The New Testament authors de designate Jesus as Mashiach. This signified God's consecrating choice of Jesus as prophet, messenger of God, priest, mediator between God, and king, leader. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh at the birth of Jesus from the Magi confirm his priestly and kingly ministry. The Magi were anointing Jesus at his birth with the blessing of myrrh, which was one of the ingredients of the Old Testament anointing oil. Similarly, frankincense confirmed Jesus as priest because priests would, of course, burn incense before God. We who have put our faith in Christ have been anointed in Christ as priests. The priesthood of all believers is a profound biblical theology that Martin Luther rediscovered during the Reformation. We're all priests, and this anointing that a Christian receives by no merit of his own is likened to the anointing of the priests in the Old Testament. This same Aaronic perpetual high priesthood belongs eternally to Christ alone. In Numbers 25, Phineas, the high priest, had a zeal for the Lord in ridding Israel of her idolatry, if you remember that story. It's very interesting. <laughs> it was to him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Likewise, through Christ's zeal for his father's house and an atoning work that he did on the cross, he obtained the perpetual priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews makes the case that the eternal anointed perpetual priesthood belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Astoundingly, Peter describes that we are also a holy priesthood with Christ as our perpetual high priest. Jesus, the apostles, the early church, and the New Testament writers claim Jesus as Christos and Mashiach. Christos, of course, is the Greek word, a form of Mashiach or Messiah, anointed one. The New Testament writers applied that Greek suffix to he of the Hebrew Mashiach to Jesus' name. Jesus Christ simply means Jesus anointed one, Jesus the chosen one or anointed of God. He is the anointed mediator between God and man. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, Christos. Paul explains here that we need no more men of God to stand in between us and God. The Old Testament pattern of mediators is no longer necessary because we have a singular mediator. The New Testament writers clarify Jesus's mediating role, but what did Jesus say of himself? Lest we think that Jesus never claimed to be anointed of God, let's look at the claims of himself. As Jesus was reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he read this section where it says, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Certainly, Jesus applied this Messianic text from Isaiah to himself in saying that the text had been fulfilled in their hearing. He was claiming that he was that anointed one that Isaiah had prophesied about. 
this text was principally accepted as a messianic text that prophesied the coming Mashiach. So Jesus certainly did claim of himself, along with the New Testament writers, that he was the anointed of God by applying these texts to himself. He is the one from God, anointed in a special function in which no one else partakes. Furthermore, the apostles preached that Jesus, as the anointed one, Peter and the other early church lifted up one voice to call Jesus the Mashiach when they referred to Jesus as God's, quote, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, end quote, in Acts chapter 4. It is quite clear here that the whole assembly of the church, including the apostles, believed and proclaimed that the sovereign Lord had planned for all these events to take place wherein Jesus was crucified and was the anointed Messiah of God. The assembly together quotes David and his messianic prophecy wherein David talked about rulers setting themselves up against God's anointed. In this prophecy, it's clear that David was prophesying the persecution and the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus. Subsequently, in Acts 10, Peter proclaims Jesus as the anointed one as the gospel was advancing across cultural lines to Cornelius' house. Peter preached that Jesus was anointed of God and that by that anointing, we can receive forgiveness of sins in his name. Every Christian is anointed. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. Quote, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Notice here that two of the three promises mentioned here by Paul are in the grammatical past tense. This means not only that we will get the promises one day, but we already partake in them. They are already part of our Christian identity as children of God. We do not need to do anything to acquire them. We already possess them as Christians. The main promise in this passage here is that we are all anointed in Christ. Paul says in verse 21, Quote, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Jesus is better than all Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings. He is a better king. He guides and governs us much better than Old Testament kings. He's a better prophet because he preaches God's word better than the Old Testament prophets. And he is a better priest. He has mediated for us between God and man, bearing our sin as no other priest could. But what is astonishing here is that God has anointed us in Christ. Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the Christ, and we are anointed in him. We don't have to do anything for it. We don't have to make an extra effort. There is no Christian that is anointed more than another. The promise of God is steadfast. You cannot be more or less anointed than you already are in Christ. Additionally, in 1 John 2, 22 through 27, we see that we cannot lose this anointing or that it somehow diminishes. Anointing is not on a scale. It cannot weaken or it cannot lose its effect. The beloved apostle writes, quote, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And then in a further verse, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. 
Noteworthy here is that all Christians are anointed in and under him. We don't have to do anything for it. We don't have to make any extra effort. There is one, there's no one more anointed than another. And it is a valid and lawful, reliable promise of God. We are all equally anointed in Christ. The name Christian actually means follower of the anointed one. Ultimately, we cannot lose that anointing. It is a promise that abides. God's anointing work is indemnified within our salvation. The next promise seen in this passage is interconnected to the anointing work of God. We are sealed in Christ. Paul writes in verse 22, and who also has put his seal on us? The sealing that we see in other places in the New Testament are descriptors of God's salvific work. The Spirit's salvific work is his sealing work. Here Paul combines the two ideas together, anointing and sealing are one and the same work. The word sealed in the Greek is sphagizo. Uh, I actually just talked to my baker this morning. My baker, who is Greek, tells me it is a dental filling in modern Greek right now. And a seal on a bag or a seal on the lid of a Coke. That's how he puts it to me. In those days, it was the seal of a king. When they put the ring in to the wax, that was the seal. Protecting and showing ownership and to authenticate or confirm They are interchangeable. God's anointing work and the sealing work, Paul combines those and they are interchangeable. These promises are there for every Christian, not an elite class of Christian who can figure out some hidden, subjective, ambiguous technique to be anointed. These promises are for every Christian already. We will not get the promises one day. We already have them. This pledge of the Holy Spirit is a sign that already exists. Our heavenly inheritance is waiting on us. As children of God, we don't have to do anything to get it. We already have it. Moreover, we cannot do anything to lose these promises. They are as firm as the earth beneath us and as sure as the heavens are above us. Neither sin nor guilt can separate us from the mercy of Jesus Christ and the promises we have in him. Even our piety cannot become more so pronounced enough to preserve these promises. They are already received simply because of our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. We are sealed and anointed through faith in our anointed head. Does Jesus teach that supernatural power is linked to anointing? Jesus does not teach the idea that anointing is linked to miracles. Jesus said when the final judgment comes that many will claim that they had done miracles in his name. Jesus does not confirm them in their miracles. Jesus will say on that day to many who ostensibly perform miracles in his name, quote, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The prophets and apostles in the word of faith and new apostolic reformation movements proclaim themselves as anointed by the assertion that they are miracle workers. However, Jesus does not teach that. Jesus articulates that these miracles are not evidence of salvation, much less anointing. The working of miracles cannot even be claimed as evidence for the fruit of salvation, much less an extraordinary anointing. For he will say to those who have claimed to perform miracles, depart from me. 
Jesus reiterates this point that miracles are no sign of the efficacy of an anointing when he says, quote, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect in Matthew 20, 24. Christ himself confirms that miracles will be performed by false prophets and false Christs and are no sign of anointing. Therefore, Teachers who claim they have an extra special anointing are fabricating and have built a construct that Jesus' teaching does not allow. It is a construct that they have created to keep themselves in power. As we've seen, Christians are all anointed equally in Jesus Christ. Jesus does not teach that some obscure supernatural power is tantamount to anointing. Rather, he contradicts the idea of an extraordinary anointing that would be signified by the working of miracles. Furthermore, teaching that there is an extraordinary mystical anointing that Christians should be seeking adds a burden to the Christian walk that neither Jesus nor the New Testament writers required of us. This burden can discourage and dishearten the normal Christian when this extraordinary anointing that is promised in conjunction with miracles and the supernatural does not occur in the Christian's life. The current trend in young people deconstructing their faith is partially due to unfulfilled promises within such teachings. Christians are becoming disillusioned with a Christianity that is not actually the true anointed Christianity that Jesus and the New Testament promise in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 22 and 1 John 2. There is much evidence that people in the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith are deconstructing their faith uh, and we are witnessing countless young people deconstructing from such a version of Christianity that is a construct that includes such aberrant ideas of the anointing that the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith movements have presented for years. Introduction to the New Apostolic Reformation's Theology of Anointing. The Word of Faith and the New Apostolic Reformation teach that there are more anointed Christians than others. What do they mean by this is a person is more powerful or a person is more capable of healing or of doing signs and wonders. Juxtaposing that idea to the plain teachings of the New Testament, we see that it is clearly out of step. One of the main examples of such teaching comes from apostle and senior leader of Bethel Church in Redding, California, Bill Johnson. In chapter 12 of his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, Johnson lays out his theology of anointing. He connects the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you can see that. The Holy Spirit uh, upon people for a ministry when he says, quote, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in his, is his actual presence upon people for ministry. The purpose of the anointing is to make the supernatural natural. Johnson makes the case that anointing is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, this doesn't square with any Old Testament or New Testament teachings or practice of what anointing truly was. Anointing was only a consecration for an office, namely the offices of prophet, priest, or king. Further in this chapter, Johnson misrepresents the Hebrew word Mashiach and links it to the Holy Spirit being smeared on us. He even calls this section smeared with God. Johnson says the presence of God, quote, the presence of God is to be realized in the anointing. Remember, anointing means smeared. It is God covering us with his spirit-filled presence. Supernatural things happen when we walk in the anointing, end quote. Nowhere in scripture do we see the Holy Spirit smearing a person. Solely the thing that has been smeared on a person was the anointing oil of consecration. 
Earlier on in his book, Johnson lays the foundation of his theology of anointing, wherein he minimizes the anointing of Jesus. He opens chapter 7 with these words, quote, Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ means, quote, anointed one or Messiah. It is a title that points to an experience. It was not sufficient that Jesus be sent from heaven to earth with a title. He had to receive the anointing in an experience to accomplish what the Father desired. The word anointing means to smear. The Holy Spirit is the oil of God that was smeared all over Jesus at his water baptism. The name Jesus Christ implies that Jesus is the one smeared with the Holy Spirit, end quote. Johnson's theology of anointing embraces the concept that Jesus was not anointed innately, and moreover that Jesus had to receive the anointing through an experience. Johnson further diminishes the divinity of Christ by trying to equate Jesus' anointing to the thing that enabled him when he says, quote, the anointing is what linked Jesus, the man, to the divine, enabling him to destroy the works of the devil. These miraculous ways helped to set something in motion that mankind could inherit once we were redeemed. Heaven, that supernatural realm, was to become mankind's daily bread. Its present tense existence was explained in Jesus' statement, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means heaven is not just our eternal destination, but it's also a present reality. It's within arm's reach, end quote. Did Jesus receive his anointing through an experience? Could he only accomplish what the Father had asked of him through experiential anointing? The effect of this line of thinking greatly diminishes the nature of Christ. Primarily, according to Johnson, Christ is only divine because of his connection to the anointing. Secondarily, Christ received the anointing through experience. This is a perilous Christology and greatly undermines the divinity of Christ over and against an anointing experience. Christian theology does not teach that anointing leaked Jesus to the divine. He was innately divine. And as a result of his innate deity, Jesus was confirmed as the anointed one. Many commentators on Colossians 2.9 make the point that Jesus was bodily in essence and nature God. Therefore, Jesus' innate nature is from eternity to eternity divine. Jesus acquired the moniker, the anointed one, because of his divinity, not because of an anointing experience that linked him to the divine. Likewise, uh, Bruce and Simpson, commenting on Colossians 2.9, note that Jesus is, quote, the one mediator between God and man, the one in whom the plentitude of deity was embodied. One who shared fully in the divine nature had become flesh and tabernacled among men. Furthermore, Jesus' innate divinity was confirmed by all New Testament writers. In so doing, they bestowed upon him the title, the Anointed One. As we have seen up to this point, anointing is nowhere described in the Old Testament or New Testament in such ways as Johnson and other NAR teachers propose. It was never said of Jesus that he received his anointing through experience. Johnson's teaching on the anointing wades into deeper waters when he says that we can also release our anointings into our surroundings as if it were a substance. Johnson filled this idea out further and repeats his, his understandings of the anointing as releasing the presence of God when he writes, quote, when we minister in the anointing, we actually give away the presence of God. We impart him to others, end quote. The Holy Spirit, the sovereign God, cannot be released by any man. 
He is not bound. He does not need our help, nor does he beckon us to release him. Furthermore, the Bible describes no such practice as releasing anointing or releasing a substantive presence of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1.9 clearly explains how Jesus was completely fulfilled the role of the anointed prophet, priest, and king better than any other anointed leader of Israel. The writer of Hebrews writes, quote, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, end quote. Most commentators confirm that the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus' unction, his anointing, is beyond all his fellows. The NAR and the Word of Faith movement manufacture an unction or anointing for the Christian and themselves as leaders. That is at least tantamount to the unction of Jesus Christ. This passage in Hebrews shows that our anointing falls woefully short of the anointing of Christ. Therefore, anyone who would seek to teach that we can have the same anointing with which Jesus was anointed clearly opposes the straightforward teaching of Scripture and significantly diminishes the anointed ministry of Christ. Christ has exceeded all his companions, everyone who came before him in the office of prophet, priest, or king, and anyone who would come after him in the community of Christian anointed ones cannot similarly be anointed. Thus, the whole of scriptures is about his anointed office. Jesus alone stands as the anointed one who can exclusively mediate and continues to mediate the relationship between God and man in heaven perfectly as God's anointed head. Therefore, God has exalted him above all his fellows. No one else even comes close. Radio host, author, and apologist Dr. Michael Brown often dismisses critique of the New Apostolic Reformation by intimating that there is no such thing and that it's a construct of the critics. However, there is a plethora of evidence that it exists. Missiologist C. Peter Wagner, who coined the phrase, is often understood as the father and catalyst of the NAR movement. Shay-An is also thought to have received the mantle of carrying on the leadership of the movement from Wagner when he took over as chancellor of the Wagner Leadership Institute that Wagner started. Ahn wrote uh, in his book, Modern Day Apostles, I have it here, Modern Day Apostles, Operating in Your Apostolic Office and Anointing, that we can now say that we are living in the new apostolic age because God is restoring the truth that the gift and the office of apostles is for today. On later claimed in that same book that the gift and office of apostle not only function today, but we're living in a new age that Peter Wagner has defined as the, quote, new apostolic reformation. On also said that Wagner claimed that we were living in a new apostolic age. On confirms that he believes in apostolic government when he wrote, for apostolic government to be effective, it must rely on the personal leadership of apostles rather than organizational systems. By organizational structures, he is undoubtedly referring to denominational and individual church member government structures. Dr. Michael Brown was a guest on Shea Ahn's television show called Equipping the Saints. Ahn named Dr. Brown as an apostle in the movement who has what Ahn called a cluster anointing, quote unquote, in which an apostle is anointed in more than one area. Thus, he has a cluster of gifts. Ahn continued to call Dr. Brown an apostolic evangelist and said he felt like God has called you to, an apostle, to be an apostle in the body of Christ. Furthermore, Ahn said, I feel like, quote unquote, I feel like you have authority. And because of his status as an apostle, Ahn asked Brown to pray and make decrees and declarations for revival. 
Wagner explained that impartation of anointing would be the foundation of the Wagner Leadership Institute. He said that it would have no academic requirements for entrance and that the impartation of anointing will be its goal, not the transmission of information. As seen in Wagner, Brown, Ahn, and Johnson's teaching, the modern leaders in this movement have only built on the ideas of their predecessors that the fundamental quality of an apostolic leader is a mystical anointing for supernatural power. Wagner and his successors confirm that the main values that will be transmitted in NAR training institutions is the quote-unquote impartation of anointing. Johnson confirms Wagner's type of educational experience when he writes, quote, pursue the men and women of God who carry an anointing in their lives for the miraculous. Such an anointing can be transferred to others through the laying on of hands, end quote. Wagner defined an educational approach where apostles can lay hands on people to transfer the anointing. Johnson confirms that he practices, believes, and teaches that the same transference is possible by encouraging others to pursue people who can transfer the anointing. Another teaching that Johnson purports in this is that Christ-like character must be developed under some anointed leader, presumably an apostle. He writes, quote, Christ-like character can never be fully developed without serving under the anointing, end quote. In other words, Johnson directs his readers to come under a ministry like his or another New Apostolic Reformation prophet or apostle. According to Johnson, only then can a Christ-like character be fully developed. Furthermore, Johnson creates an antagonistic and adversarial posture toward those who do not teach and or believe in this sort of capricious anointing. He wrote a chapter called The Anointing and the Antichrist. The view he represents in this chapter can be certainly understood as extreme. He communicates in that chapter that people have a religious spirit of the Antichrist if they, quote, reject anything that has to do with the Holy Spirit's anointing. Johnson further paints the picture that those who do not hold to a special anointing that he describes with unique manifestation, tears, laughter, supernatural power for miracles, etc., are opposing God and have an antichrist spirit and have, quote, a form of religion, of godliness, but deny its power and from such people turn away, end quote. This whole chapter is highly inflammatory and accuses a large segment of Christians of having a religious and antichrist spirit. Such a position is elitist, extreme, and demonizes an entire segment of evangelicalism and could possibly create irreparable rifts. The main theological viewpoint in this movement understands anointing as the capacity or capability of producing miracles and healings. For instance, Bill Johnson and Randy Clark wrote the book, Anointed to Heal, True Stories and Practical Insight for Praying for the Sick. In it, Clark and Johnson interview each other on how they claim they are anointed to heal as the title describes. Johnson additionally describes his anointing as the ability to produce miracles and healings in his book, Strengthen Yourself in the Lord. He writes how he received a prophetic word that God was going to, quote, anoint me to walk in a ministry of healing and miracles. Like Johnson, Clark understands and teaches that the anointing is transferable power. Candy Gunther Brown describes Clark's view as, quote, more contagious than disease and the anointing or the oil-like spread of the Holy Spirit as a tangible, transferable or love energy that is caught rather than taught and imparted to others through human touch. Additionally, Brown describes the path to anointing in this movement. She describes that they teach that anyone can be anointed by the impartation. 
These several examples prove to confirm the aberrant teaching on the anointing and the new apostolic reformation. These few quotes give a basis for the understanding of the larger movement of which these leaders are a part. Their understandings of anointing certainly are not exhaustive or held by every single person in the movement. However, most teachers in the New Apostolic Reformation would hold to some form of the anointing of apostles for the transference of that anointing to others for the express purpose of working miracles. I have a big section in my uh, paper that I'll have to uh, uh, go over. It showed uh, in Lakeland, uh, the Lakeland Revival on June 23rd, 2008, there was a apostolic alignment service for Todd Bentley in which many of the NAR leaders also confirmed their belief that there is an extra special anointing and they were proclaiming and prophesying that anointing over Todd Bentley. I will post that in our our uh, group chats there for your uh, leisure. In conclusion, we see that the modern Christian movement often errs and deviates significantly in their teaching, practice, and theology of anointing. Our view on anointing is one of the most fundamental beliefs of Christianity. The Old Testament practice of anointing sanctified and set something or someone apart for the service of God. We understand Jesus as the long-awaited Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one. With no one his equal, he fills faithfully the anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king. As a result of our union with Christ, we are also anointed. There is no one Christian who is more anointed than another. We cannot lose the anointing, and the anointing is linked inextricably with our being sealed in the Holy Spirit. Likewise, there is no such thing as anointings for miracles, healings, money, or some other nebulous mystical supernatural power. Jesus is our anointed head, and as the New Testament describes, we are all anointed in him because of the great salvation he has afforded us by forgiving and atoning for our sins. For his atoning and for the atoning with which he has sealed us in the Holy Spirit, we shall be eternally grateful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Churchpreneur's Podcast. If you like what you hear, you appreciate my content. I'd appreciate if you might leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to this podcast on. You might also give me a thumbs up in YouTube or click the subscribe button or hit the bell button so you can get notified of future episodes. That'd really help me out. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you. Until next time, take care.